Welcome to the New Faces of Democracy podcast, the show featuring inspiring conversation with people at the grassroots and the grass tops, doing extraordinary things to stand up for our democracy. I'm your host, Nancy Bynum. This podcast celebrates people who are transforming our political landscape by organizing, running for office, or generally striving to make our democracy live up to its promise of a more perfect union. I hope their stories will inspire you to learn more about them or to take action on your own. Head over to newfacesofdemocracy.org for easy links to subscribe, follow on social media, and to get more inspiration. On this episode, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Fernandez of Movement Voter Project. Movement Voter Project is based on the ingenious concept of empowering local grassroots groups around the country that are working in and trusted by their communities 365 days a year. MVP provides the groups with support and training and frees them up from time-consuming fundraising to focus on their important work helping and advocating for their neighbors. And when elections roll around, these local organizers are perfectly positioned to get out the Democratic vote in ways that no outsider could replicate. MVP may fly under the radar, but its reach is deep and wide. Elizabeth and I talk about MVP's astonishing impact in 2020, why the key to lasting progressive change lies in empowering local community organizers, and why they need support every year, and not just during the big elections. And now, here's my conversation with Elizabeth Fernandez. Elizabeth Fernandez, welcome to New Faces of Democracy. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you, Nancy. So let's start with you telling me the origin story of Movement Voter Project. How did it start? When did it start? It has a really interesting story that has to do with organizing student movements and youth organizing. So it really started with some groups, the Student Power Networks that are youth organizing across the state and Vote Mob, which actually does really rapid response organizing on college campuses and other youth spaces. And so Billy Wimsett, who is our founder, saw so much impact in just some of that additional grassroots organizing support, and it comes from the grassroots world. And that actually turned into, in the states where they had a vote mob, in the states where they had they were working on a student power network, recognizing and realizing, wait a minute, look at all of these amazing grassroots groups who are doing this incredible work with very little funding, with very little support on a national level. And us deciding as an organization, it's a very small startup organization, okay, let's start putting together a spreadsheet of all the groups that need money so that they can organize on the ground. And it's turned into, now we've been through multiple electoral cycles. We have shown over and over again that investing in grassroots groups wins in powerful ways and in ways that honestly can't be done top down. So we are not like many other funders, we do not have an endowment. We are a grassroots movement ourselves, raising money for local grassroots organizations in key states. And it's because we believe that this is the most effective strategy to win a better future for all of us long-term. The power needs to cut from the grassroots up. And that's where we listen. That's where we help. And that's what we're here to do. What are the benefits of working with local groups versus a more top-down national model? And I I can say this also from the unique perspective of 
coming straight from a grassroots group myself before I joined Movement Voter Project. I actually led communications at Florida Immigrant Coalition for nearly two years. And this was when Trump was attacking the immigrant community in such vicious ways. I mean, he would send out a tweet that they're going to raid Florida. And literally, I remember he sent out a tweet that they're going to raid Miami. And so literally all the stores shut down, the parking lots were empty, immigrants were afraid to take their kids to school and go to doctor's appointments. And for me, working with Florida Immigrant Coalition, it's like, okay, we know that at the end of the day, what matters is what's happening inside the communities. So it's not just that Florida Immigrant Coalition was activated during elections, the attacks on immigrants were happening all year round. So what that looks like is, let's listen to what the communities need, immediately trying to get information out there on how to protect yourself, literally getting information, going on all of the local news networks with, here's how to protect yourself, here's how you answer the door if immigration knocks on your door, here are your rules and rights and putting together cards that you could hand out. We were literally doing canvassing not during election times, and we were canvassing, handing out flyers, showing the community how to know your rights and defend yourself against attacks by ICE and by police. And so these people, these families, and especially in Florida, and just as a singular example, Florida has very mixed families, mixed communities, where you'll have people with all sorts of different immigration statuses. So the people who remember us knocking on their door when they're in crisis are going to remember when we knock on the door and say, this is who we think is going to be best for our community. And you can't replicate that from Washington, D.C. down. You just can't. So what I hear you saying is that basically you build up the trust, or I'm sorry, the locally based groups build up the trust by being there 365 days a year and not election cycles and election cycles all the time serving the community. And so when it comes time to say, you've got to vote for this guy because he's going to represent you, they will listen to you versus some stranger knocking on the door. Part of it is when we're talking about supporting grassroots groups, we're supporting both C3 and C4 organizations, what that looks like. And it's a very important distinction. Florida Immigrant Coalition, for example, that is a C3 group. And so when we were trying to get people to vote, we're not telling them who to vote for. It's literally come and vote. Voting is important to you. Fill out your census form. Filling out the census is important to you. And that is a really important part of it, where it isn't just about we're telling you who to vote for. This is about how do we expand the electorate and break the barriers to voting that people are facing on so many levels? And so that's a really big part of it. And there are also C4 organizations, Move and Voter Project is a C4 organization. And so we also fund groups that will do things like say, okay, these are the candidates who we think best support our issues. And here's who, for example, we're endorsing in an election. So it's a big distinction and it's an important one. And so part of it is making sure that we are not just saying, here's who you need to vote for. Here is 
why voting is important, and here are the barriers to voting that are keeping people from being able to turn out. And they're barriers to voting that are being instituted on a local legislative level. And so while so much of the attention is in Washington, the grassroots groups are the ones who are listening every legislative session to what's happening, listening to the bills, blocking the bills that are being passed. They're the ones who are saying, we need to have thousands of phone calls to this one state legislator's office from people in the community because those are the calls that matter a lot more than somebody from Washington calling or somebody from New York calling. If you wanna make a difference in Maricopa County, Arizona, the people of Maricopa County, Arizona are the ones who need to be calling their local legislatures to tell them what they need in their communities. And they need to be the ones with the power. That is a very powerful concept. So it was founded in what year? So officially 2016 was the first electoral cycle where Movement Voter Project as an organization started working. And at the time it was Movement 2016. In 2016, Movement Voter Project was a very small organization with a very small footprint. And just to give you an example of how big we are right now, we were able to raise more than $100 million to support over 600 groups in 42 states, from Alaska to Florida. 281 of those were in 18 of the top battleground states. So Arizona, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Georgia, and 69 of those groups had never done any voter engagement work before, or they were completely brand new groups. They'd never done anything before, we actually help them get their seed funding and work in these very niche communities oftentimes. So I'll give you an amazing example from Georgia, from the Georgia Senate election. So we worked with a lot of different groups in Georgia. And actually, in Georgia, every Black male voter in the entire state was contacted multiple times by grassroots groups on multiple levels. Sure, it it might look like some social media stuff, but it also looks like going to barber shops with flyers, letting people know the information about voting. It also looks like male support circles where dads can come in and talk about their life and what it's like, for example, to have their kids doing virtual schooling. And you're building those relationships in those communities so that they don't think that you're there for a transactional vote. And the truth is, they're not. There's nothing fake about it. These are grassroots groups from the community who are doing it. And it's like in Georgia, for example, they had this Collard Greens Caucus where they basically, they were giving away all of this food, this delicious food, New Year's food. You have Hop and John and Collard Greens and you have all this like amazing cultural food. And they actually bought all of that food from Black farmers, Black rural farmers. So not only are you engaging communities at a time when there's so much food scarcity, you're engaging farmers, rural farmers. There are a lot of Black rural farmers who are voters and who can really, really show up and make a difference when they vote for their best interests. And it's just about bringing together these communities in innovative ways that somebody who's not from that community would never even think to do it. That's brilliant. So how do you find the groups to support and what kind of vetting process is there? 
One of the most amazing things that I find about how we work is that we actually have state advisors who work directly with key states. And so some of them are really embedded. We have state advisors who are working in Georgia, who are working in Pennsylvania, who are working in Florida, in Arizona, and all of their time with MVP is spent working with these groups and creating communities. And so these are almost always, in fact, every single one of them comes from the grassroots. And MVP hires a lot from the grassroots. Part of the fact of having staff embedded in all these different states is we're all really, really invested in these communities. And so we do a very serious vetting process. We also actually have it up on our website, movement.vote. If anybody wants to check it out, you can see our vetting process. We have a lot of different information that folks can look up. But we also create very deep state plans along with our state advisors where we actually break down, here are the groups that we're going to be working with, here are our plans, here's our voting targets. And then that's also how we can kind of determine So we think of it in several different chunks. There's anchor groups, and they're the ones who've been there for many years. They are very well established. They have a giant, giant statewide profile, if not a national profile. So those are the anchor groups. And on the whole other end, you have the real startup groups. They may be small. They may have never done this work before. They're just starting out. We provide them with capacity building. We provide them with training. It's not just about giving them funding. It's about, can this executive director of a new organization that has two employees call up the state advisor and say, hey, how do I get to join the state table, for example? In Arizona, this is something that happened in an amazing way. Dine Care Action, which is a group that has a long history of organizing in the Navajo Nation, had not joined any of the C4 state tables where they basically decide how they're gonna carve up a lot of the voter registration and do a lot of the C4 political planning. So we made sure, our state advisor made sure, hey, we don't have indigenous representation on this board. This is an amazing organization that had never done voting work before. They'd done so much amazing work. Diné Cares has a 25-year history of working with the Navajo community, working on environmental issues, and especially after Trump has realized everything that affects us happens in Washington and our people need to go out and vote. And that is some of the stuff that really helped flip. So they started a C4. They joined the C4 table. They worked together with the grassroots community in ways that they hadn't before. And we see what happened in Arizona. So what exactly are these tables? I don't know what that is. So one of the really amazing things that has been happening more and more in states is, so I'll tell you a little bit of a pulling back behind the curtain to show, before a lot of these groups were really organized together, they would almost be fighting for funding again with each other, like fighting for resources with each other. If they wanted to do voter registration, three groups would show up in the same place trying to do the same thing. So some of the state tables that have happened that exist, and some of them are C3, some of them are C4, they all have their own priorities. But what the state tables are is a way to coordinate 
the kind of work that's being done to make sure that we're everyone's pooling resources, that everyone is, for example, deciding on territories when it comes to voter registrations, for example. So not everybody shows up at the same school trying to do voter registration. Let's make sure that we're using the resources wisely. And so that's part of what we do is help connect groups with some of the amazing organizing work that's already happening that they may not know about, especially when you've got groups that are like, I am going to start an organization because this neighborhood in this city is not represented. How do I start? If our state advisor feels like this is something really powerful, it feels like they can really make a big impact, they can really help get some people engaged in in civic engagement, what happens is they will start to connect them. Okay, who are the other organizations in the city? How can we make those connections? How can we send emails and make phone calls and have meetings together? And how can we plan together to really pool our power? But it all comes from the grassroots up. We're not telling them what they should do. They're telling us, this is what we need. And we are trying to help fund, build, support, and create the infrastructure for them to succeed. So you will provide a bunch of different services depending on what level the organization is. If it's like, I don't know, what is it, New Georgia Project? Yeah. They're probably very established and don't need anything except maybe funding. And then a startup might need strategy help, tech help. I don't know. I imagine like across the range. It's not quite exactly like that in that, for example, a big group might be doing really well in some ways, but may say to themselves, oh, we really could be doing a better job with our data management. And we could be doing a lot better, for example, in using voter information to really try to target, for example, voters who didn't show up in the last election. How do we get them there? So then our capacity building program We helped 90 groups gain access to the best digital organizing tools for their work, hosted 28 training sessions attended by 784 groups and more than 1,100 individuals, everything from digital organizing skills to vote by mail. And also keep in mind, last year, this time last year, we're in February, every single group had an amazing plan ready to go. And by March, none of it was applicable anymore because of COVID. And so our capacity building team, our capacity building manager had to shift and say, okay, how can we provide the new digital tools, the new digital training? If you thought you're going to be walking on this many doors by this month, you're not going to be able to. What does it look like to start a text banking program? What does it look like to do virtual phone banking? So a lot of it is also being prepared for when the unknown happens. So I'll revise what I said before. It's you guys support all the groups across your spectrum with whatever they need. And you're sort of in the background, but able to step up wherever you can best facilitate them to be their best selves. They are the leaders. We have on our website, actually a video about Arizona. It's one of our featured videos. If anybody wants to go to movement.vote and check it out. And it shows how, for example, some of the Latinx organizing groups like Poder and Lucha, 10 years ago, if you remember, the sheriff, Arpeo, was really pushing these incredible anti-immigrant tactics. They actually passed a law that 
allowed police to basically demand papers for anybody, basically any brown person, anybody who they thought didn't have the right legal paperwork on them. And I'll just give you a little bit of a personal example. For like the entire Latinx community, even if we didn't live in Arizona, I lived in Florida, I'm a Florida native. I actually had a cop pull me over and because both of us, Latinos, my passenger didn't have his driver's license and the cop literally screamed at us for 20 minutes that he could arrest us, he could deport us if we didn't have our papers. And those kinds of incredible anti-immigrant laws embolden so many people even people outside of that community. And so the people who started Poder and Lucha, those organizations, they have their beginnings in candlelight vigils for their families. They have those beginnings in youth organizers who said, we need to be the leaders that we want to be to change the world. And that's where the time you need to invest on year, off year, there's no such thing. You need to invest. These groups were able to grow. They had a 10 year plan to transform the state and they have done it. <laughs> and it's still a process. Arizona now has decided, one of the proposed bills basically says that their state legislature can overturn any presidential vote from the state. And that's, that's an actual bill that's been proposed for the state legislative session this year in Arizona. I mean, every single time that there's a win, the pushback is how do we keep people from voting even more? And so that's why we've got the groups on the ground who are constantly fighting back, who are standing up for their people, who are educating their people, who are educating their communities on what to do, how to vote, who to contact, but also how to survive. It's a really hard time for so many people. And it has been a hard time for so many people because this isn't new. What we're facing with COVID illuminates the really, really terrible inhumanity of how injustices have really been perpetuated against poor people, against people of color, against indigenous people. The Navajo Nation is struggling so badly with COVID, not because of anything that they're not doing, because they're doing every single thing they can. They've closed their borders, they're trying to do everything they can to take care of their people, even though they've not gotten the funding that they promised under Trump at all. Like they've not gotten any of the resources and support. But an even deeper issue that goes way before COVID. Nobody has invested in the infrastructure to have running water in their homes. So you've got these amazing communities that are losing their elders, that are losing their native tongue, where so many of the elders are the ones who speak that and who teach that to others. They're losing all of this. And a big part of it is, if you don't have running water, how can you wash your hands? You're supposed to be washing your hands 20 seconds, multiple times a day, And if you don't have running water, how do you do that? This is simply revealing the deep, deep injustice that has been perpetuated against people for generations. On your website, you have a really interesting discussion of what happened in Arizona. And I thought that that provides a good microcosm of just the, A, the vastness of your work and B, the way certain states 
came through in a surprise and a squeaker win for Biden and in Georgia for Democratic senators. So I just would love it if you walk us through what you guys did in Arizona. I mean, what your groups that you support did in Arizona. Absolutely. And I want to go back and really mention Poder, Lucha, Black Phoenix Votes, Dina Care Action. These are groups like Black Phoenix Votes. They launched in 2019. That is a brand new group. Dina Care Action. Dina Care has been doing amazing work, especially environmental justice work, because that really, really impacts the Navajo Nation. They've been doing that work for 25 years, and they'd never done voter work before because it wasn't something that was really funded and resourced. So we helped them launch Dina Care Action to do civic engagement work. Poder, like I mentioned, they've been working for 10 years. Lucha has been working 10 years. They've been spending decades trying to work really to fight back against such ugly anti-immigrant attacks. They were just devastating communities and families. And so in Arizona, and we have 34 Arizona partners, but Lucha, Lucha on their own made 2.6 million calls to voters. Arizona was decided by around 10,000 votes. So think about the difference that that makes. And it's not just in Arizona. In Wisconsin, Lit Action Fund, which is one of our 48 Wisconsin partners, they made 1.2 million calls to young voters of color. And Wisconsin was decided by just 20,000 votes. So in Pennsylvania, we supported One Hood to run their very first voter program in 2019. By 2020, they had reached out to more than 500,000 low propensity voters in black communities, and they actually led the entire early vote strategy in Western Pennsylvania. And that's a state that had never done any early voting before. So it's these groups that are finally being given the resources to dream as big as possible and seeing their dreams come true it's saving our nation. That segues us well into going forward and what you guys are working on now between elections and what we can do to help you guys lay the groundwork for 2022 and 2024 and just in general to support these communities. Absolutely. And I have a lot I want to talk to you about (laughs) that. (laughs) So a big one is it's going to be launching our progressive decade plan. And it is a whole progressive decade strategy where we're actually breaking down and we're going to be launching this in March. And we're also going to have a briefing where we're going to be able to talk about this, where we're really launching a progressive decade strategy where it isn't about waiting for the next election. It is about here are the cycles of work that are going to be happening. So thinking of from election to election, here's when an election happens. Here's the portion where we go through our data and we decide what worked and what didn't. And I don't mean we as an MVP, we as a movement, as the grassroots groups, as everybody, we decide what worked, what didn't. Then you've got legislative sessions, which are frequently ignored, but it's where so much of the really horrible voter suppression bills end up passing. And then 
In the meantime, you've got community growth and community impact. What are the community events that we are able to facilitate? What are the city council meetings that people need to show up, the school board meetings that people need to show up to building that culture of civic engagement? And then you've got all of the local elections. You've got these really important school board and city councilor and primaries, all of these elections that don't get a lot of attention on a national level, but for a local community, impact them a heck of a lot more than what happens in Washington, DC. So we're building basically a cycle that there is no off time. And so how can we make sure that, for example, we're funded for legislative session? How can we be sure that we're funded for internal and smaller state primaries going all the way up to, okay, now we're working on voter registration time. Now we're working on building up towards our get out the vote time. And now we're working towards the election. And now, unfortunately, because of what Trump has shown, we need to build into that cycle defending the election results in a way that we never have before. And that's going to be one of the darkest legacies of the Trump administration that we're also going to have to build within our plans defending our election wins. So unlike the Democratic model that's existed for so many years where it's like show up every four years, please vote for us and then kind of disappear in the meantime, you guys are there consistently building the community like you said, helping people build their civic engagement muscles, creating trust, delivering to communities. And then when it becomes time to vote, people will come out and vote. And it's working. It's worked in 2018. 2020 was a real, just a real, real showcase of what that looks like. And it doesn't look like somebody showing up a month in advance. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation. Your model is, I mean, it it just seems transformational. It's one of those things that's like right in front of your eyes and you sort of wonder like, why weren't we all doing this before? (laughs) But you're really seeing results. It feels very promising. And obviously you guys delivered so much in this past election cycle. So thank you so much for the work you do. And thank you for speaking to me today. I appreciate it. And one of the things that I do want to say, we're a grassroots fundraising organization, so everybody can get involved. If you go to movement.vote, there's ways to get involved, ways to volunteer. We helped organize close to 400 fundraising events in person and online. We work more than a thousand co-hosts. We have seven local MVP teams across the country. Some of them are strictly volunteers where all they do is, you know what? I'm going to use my privilege and I'm going to use my connections to help raise money for this because democracy matters and our country matters. It takes all of us. It takes all of us to save our democracy. Absolutely. That's a perfect way to end this. Thank you so much for being with me today, Elizabeth. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for listening. New Faces of Democracy is created and produced by me, Nancy Bynum. And in addition to being the host, I'm also the CEO, the CFO, and the administrative assistant. If you enjoyed this episode, please help New Faces of Democracy grow by subscribing on whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you're looking for more inspiration, check out my other profiles at newfacesofdemocracy.org and follow New Faces of Democracy on Instagram and Facebook. Facebook.